Well, as I said, we had a prolonged break from our study in the book of 1 John. And by way of reminder, the entirety of the book of 1 John, this epistle, surrounds this theme of eternal life. The overarching theme of the book and the burden of the apostle is for those who believe in the name of the Son of God, for them to know that they have eternal life. These words sum up the material of this book and are weaved into each and every chapter. Having penned the Gospel of John, which we are going through with Pastor John, having penned that volume, which focuses on John providing evidence to the watching and reading world that this man Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ, having done that so that those people can believe in Jesus for salvation, he now wants perhaps that these same people know that they are indeed beneficiaries of eternal life. And as we pass through these few chapters, the primary tool John uses in this epistle to communicate that these people are recipients of eternal life are diagnostic tests. He does like a doctor where you go in and you do your checkup and he checks how you're breathing, he checks your temperature, he checks your pulse. Like a doctor, John provides us with these tools which show us whether we have signs of vitality or whether indeed our faith is lifeless. And as we have gone through the, the first few chapters, we've looked at things like moral tests, we've looked at things like how, who Christians associate with, whether they're willing to associate with people from the world or whether they're people who are connected intimately to a fellowship of believers. We looked at Christians' attitude to sin, their practice of sin, and so on. When John paints an outline of what a Christian is and forces us to consider whether we fit within the contours of Christianity. The particular passage we are focusing on today follows from the introduction of the Spirit in the verse before. In our last study, which was months ago, we looked at the confidence or assurance that we have that God abides with us. And the culmination of the many evidences that John provides that God abides with us is he gives us this wonderful assurance that we know God abides with us because the Spirit of God has been given to us. But as we turn to the next chapter, which is the focus of our study today, John provides us with a sober reminder that not everyone who claims to be operating under the influence of the Spirit is truly so. And so, before we begin, it may be helpful to remind ourselves of the context of this letter. At the time of writing this epistle, several members of, the, of a church or a group of connected churches had seceded or removed themselves from fellowship with believers. We could call them the Johannine community. They'd removed themselves from, from that community. And it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine that these people had some level of influence and support because if John was merely dealing with a fringe group, two or three people that had no real bearing or relevance, he would not have bothered to pen the letter. But whether it was a large group or a small one, John recognizes some danger in this sect of people who have withdrawn from fellowship because they have preached and taught something that is different from the apostolic teaching. Remember at this time there was no Bible for each member of the church to cross-reference claims. 
the apostles were not literally sitting down outside of your house to ask them a question. The church did not have thousands of years of refining her theology. So there were pastors, sure, and prophets who spoke the very word of God. But as we will notice later, within this mix of prophets were also false prophets. And so at this stage, you could say there was some level of vulnerability that the church was susceptible to. Because, among other things, there wasn't as much clarity as we have now. So just to put it in our terms, and I crave your indulgence, as I've already been called out this morning. Say, if a large group of people in this church had seceded from fellowship because they disagreed with foundational teachings of this church. Say myself, Tevin, Shamar, Karen, Mel. Say those people had left the church. That would be a pretty discouraging pretty difficult thing for the church to go through. Not only because these people are in relationship with each other, which we can't discount, but also because there are people in the church who are influenced by others. Indeed, like I'm spurred on by the faith of others. I am moved and motivated when I see others preaching Christ, when I see others living a faithful life. So that would be a fairly difficult circumstance to begin to be in and it is within this context that john is addressing this letter to this body of believers so with that in mind let's look more closely at our text what john develops can be looked at thematically under three headings and we'll treat to them in turn and the fir first major thought we will zero in on is this imperative john says two things first he wants his readers not to believe every spirit but rather do the work of testing the spirits to see whether they are from God. So there's something not to do and something that John wants us to do instead. But in order for us to make sense of this command, we need to understand what this term spirit means. What does John mean when he says spirit? There are six verses here, but this word spirit is referenced eight times within this short text. And so if the Holy Spirit who inspired the word thought it, best to litter this text with this word, we should explore its meaning briefly. In our common parlance, when we think of spirit, we think of angels, demons, maybe even disembodied souls, the oogie woogie, you know, we don't, we don't think of the material. These ideas naturally arise because rightly we associate it with something that is not physical. But here in verse 1, the context dictates that we should view the word differently. John says, test the spirits for many false prophets have gone into the world. We could easily substitute the word prophet for spirit and render the passage, test the prophets for many false prophets have gone into the world. So at least we know that spirit at a minimum refers to prophets. But if that was all John wanted to convey, the text could have easily been rendered that way. He could have easily written the text and said, test the prophets for many false prophets have gone into the world. But Joseph Thayer, an expert in the Greek language, has, has this to say concerning the word used in verse 1. He says that John is using a literary device called metonymy. Besides it being a tongue twister, it means that he is using a device to associate an attribute of something or an idea closely connected with an object 
to replace the name of the object. By way of example, some of you know that those who follow TV shows know that lawyers are called suits. That's what you call them because they always have on suits. The idea of suitness is associated with lawyers. Or some, someone could call someone an academic because not that they are an academic, but because they are scholarly in what they say or what they do, etc. And so on. So when we read the term spirit, as it is said in verse 1, Thayer says we are meant to understand it as an individual in whom, quote, a spirit is manifest or embodied, and hence it is equivalent to a person who is either truly moved by God's spirit or falsely boasts that he is. So when we see spirit used in the text this way, John is trying to intimately tie our understanding of the operations of the spirit of God to an individual, or as we will see later in the text, the operations of the spirit of the Antichrist. What the text is really drawing out by use of that literary, literary device is simply this. When someone says that they're speaking on God's behalf, John is explaining that you are really giving your attention to the spirit of God, or you're really giving your attention to the spirit of the Antichrist. So yes, we are to rightly think that he says, do not believe every human being or every prophet. But the word spirit gives us a further sense that these people are giving expression to either spirit that is diabolical or spirit or the spirit of God. Pardon me. So with that in mind, back to our command. Remember that I said earlier, John impresses on our mind to not do something. So in verse 1, we read, do not believe every spirit. And here, John disabuses all notions of credulity in spiritual matters. What I'm saying is, Christians are not supposed to be gullible in matters of what they believe and who they believe. Listen, this is a sober reminder that comes to us in the form of earnest plea. John begins by saying, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, as though he's trying to entreat a son to see the earnestness of what he's saying. Do not believe every spirit, but rather test the spirits to see whether they're from God. At the very least, this means we're not to be passive recipients of information. You're not supposed to get at a church or a gathering where preaching is being done and put your brain in neutral and wherever the terrain leads you, that is where you will go. That, that is not what you're supposed to be doing. Instead, we are supposed to exert our mental faculties to see whether the words come to us from God. Another way of simply saying this is to say, test the spirit. John says, do not believe every spirit. But obviously he didn't say, do not believe any spirits. There's a spirit to be believed, right? The spirit of God. And therefore, Christians are called to undertake the mental work of testing the spirits. The circumstances of this letter which demanded this response aren't really any different today are they? There are many false prophets now, perhaps many more. By account, uh, if you do a quick review of the, the number of religions in the world, there are over 4,000 religions. There are now far more religions than there ever were, and perhaps with the mind of man and his sinfulness being endless, there are probably many more to be added. And so, we are called to do this work of testing the spirit. Think about this. 
If you think that the people that left the Johannine community left as Satanists, you're very wrong. If you think your biggest threat or the challenge of testing the spirit is by something that is extremely obvious, someone saying, come and worship Satan, you're very wrong. That is, that is not the danger that we face today, nor was it the danger that they faced in that day. That group of people didn't run off as some sort of cult fringe group. They left under the banner of Christianity. They left purporting even that they had true knowledge of God. Everyone in that set of people that left probably said they loved Jesus, or so they claimed. Everyone said that they knew Jesus and was operating in his name. This is why John is so vehemently opposed to persons being gullible. Do not believe every spirit, but test them. You can't believe everyone that comes to you preaching about Jesus. There are some who may not be preaching the true person and work of Christ. And so, after providing us with this imperative to test the spirits, he then informs us about how we should do so. And that's what we will focus our attention on for a little while. How do you determine a true work of the spirit is really what this passage is about. Not a spirit, but the spirit of God. How do you determine what is a true work of the spirit of God? Well, you do it by testing the spirits. The test can be looked at in two ways. The first is what the individual confesses or believes concerning Christ. What or who we are willing to listen to concerning Christ is the question. And let us turn to, to oh, pardon me, I said that wrong. The first test is what a person is confessing or believing concerning Christ. The second test is who we are willing to listen to concerning Christ. So those are two, two sides of the same coin. What we're willing to say concerning Christ and who we're willing to listen to concerning Christ. So let's look at the first one. If you have lived for more than two minutes, you know what people are willing to talk about often reveals what they believe. We, there's a reason why uh, they say that drunk people say all that's on their mind. Because their, mind are, their minds aren't in gear. They just speak whatever comes to mind. If you've sat down with anyone for any prolonged period of time on any topic, you would get to know what they believe and are convicted about. It's just human nature that we can think about a whole lot of things, but usually we only say a fraction of them. What you say, or as we will see in verse 2, what you confess or hold fast to in confession tends to agree with what you believe. My only point in saying this is that we shouldn't think that when John says whoever confesses that he has in mind the modern practice of reciting a confession sometime in your past at an altar call. That's not what he has in view. Or whispering something on under your last breath at your dying hour. John has in mind a fixed disposition or conviction in the words that you're saying. Even the tense of the word we see here suggests that this is an ongoing reality and not something in the past. He doesn't say people who confess, but people who are confessing. With the import of what John has in mind when he speaks about confessing, let's look a bit at the confession itself. The confession is quite simple and consists of seven words. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
That's the confession. That's all it is. Commenting on this passage, the Genevan reformer John Calvin highlights a few things worthy of our consideration. First, he notes that the divinity of Christ is implied and reaffirmed in this statement. Calvin remarks that when John points us to the fact that Jesus has come, it means that there was a time when he wasn't in flesh. So as we read at the beginning of this book, John speaks about that which was from the beginning. And as we noted in that particular study, John was pointing to the divinity or the divine nature of Jesus. So at the very least, we see in the confession that Jesus is divine and he has come as a man. This may seem obvious to us living in the 21st century, but at the time of this writing, one of the early heresies closely tied to Gnosticism had emerged. The heresy was called Docetism, Docetism, sorry, and it teaches that Christ had not really come in the flesh. And recall, without a Bible to cross-reference, without hundreds of years of refining theology, and no apostle on every corner, with many false prophets vying for your attention, it may have been not as obvious to them as it is to us. But listen, many commentators suggest that the reason these people believed that Jesus had not come in the flesh was to protect his transcendent nature. They basically argued, well, all flesh is evil, so God could not have become a man. That's just impossible. The transcendent, eternal, ethereal, incomprehensible God could not have become a man because, well, man and the material is evil. So God could not have demeaned himself in such a way. But listen to this. They did so in an attempt to protect God's moral, God's attributes. That's what they did. It is very similar to us. Many times, sometimes, we go off on the deep end, or we have heard of people who go off on the deep end, thinking that they're doing God a favor because they say, oh, God could not be like that. God could not possibly send a Muslim to hell if he hadn't heard the gospel and he's a good, loving Muslim. God could not have possibly done that. Or God could not have possibly given men commandments to obey when they couldn't obey them. Like God, what sort of loving God would do that? So in their sincere attempts to conform to what is, in their understanding, the material world and the, e the evil associated with it, they denied a central tenet of Christianity. Brethren, the application here is simple. Do not go beyond what is written in the Bible concerning Christ. The work of the Spirit is to testify of Christ. And so a person who has received the gift of the Spirit believes in Christ as he is presented in the Scripture. It is God who took on flesh. The Christ of Scripture isn't a halfling like the demigods of Greek mythology or the brother of Lucifer, as the Mormons believe, or the first created being, as espoused by the Jehovah Witnesses. The person Jesus Christ has confessed for hundreds of years by the church has two natures, one which is truly divine, the other which is truly human. We should not embellish or think that we can fill in the blanks in scripture. That is wrong. And John here is telling you 
To hold the confession concerning Christ is to hold the confession that the Spirit has taught. The doctrine of the Incarnation may boggle the mind. We may not understand it, but let us not go beyond what we see in the Scripture. The Spirit of God has laid out for us all that we need to know concerning Jesus' person. And as Calvin says, secondly, also his work. Calvin notes that when the passage reads that Jesus has come in the flesh, it also speaks of his work. Because as Calvin argues, there must be a cause for him coming. He, he basically raises the question, why did Jesus come in the flesh? What was the point? So it prompts us to think that Jesus actually came in the flesh because not because he was not because he was alone not because god needed to figure out how to be a man none of that the reason jesus condescended and became flesh was so that as a man he could be a faithful high priest and offer up a pleasing sacrifice of his own body on the cross for our sins this is why jesus became a man and why this confession is so important God commands us not to believe every spirit, but believe the Spirit of God who tells us of Christ and his work. And his work is this. He came into this world to accomplish salvation for sinners who could not, by their own efforts, regain right relationship with God. We have sinned, friends, and thereby incurred God's curse and his wrath. But the second person of the Trinity set aside his manifest glory and clothed himself in flesh, for the purpose of taking upon himself the guilt and punishment that sinners like us deserve. The offended took the place of the offender on the cross. Jesus died on the tree and on the third day he rose from the dead and gives righteousness to all who believe in him. Those who trust in his work are granted pardon those who trust in his work are granted righteousness to stand before God. And that is why Jesus has come. That is what is in view when John tells us that Jesus has come. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh in verse 2. It shouldn't be rocket science, but Christians have to have a working knowledge of the gospel. It is painful, to be honest, to begin a conversation with a Christian and then to begin hearing, yeah, Christian quote-unquote, as our brother is saying, to begin a conversation with a Christian and to realize that this person actually has no idea of what the gospel is. It's painful because as sincere as that person is, they're probably sincerely lost. If it is, they do not understand. If it is, they have not trusted and believed in the work and the person of Christ. This is precisely why the elders of the church take time to interview prospective members' understanding of the gospel. Among other things, yes, they look at character, etc., but they look to see whether you have an understanding of the gospel. What is it you are trusting in? Who is it that you are trusting in? If their confession is not in line with the apostolic teaching, then we have to lovingly point them to the cross so that they can trust in Jesus for the first time. Not again, but for the first time. And this is something that we have to be mindful of, not merely for a few prospective members, but for those who are still in the face. Because it's possible for believers to commit apostasy while claiming to be faithful.
It is possible to sit down in the pews week by week, month by month. One ear, it goes in one ear, it goes out the other ear. The same passivity of mind where you're not paying attention, where you're coming to church and simply putting your mind in neutral and not embracing and imbibing the truths of the scripture. It is very possible to do that. So we ought to love one another enough to not only keep our own lives in check, but also to keep the doctrine of our brothers and sisters in check. But brothers and sisters, I'm convinced of otherwise concerning you, just as the apostle was convinced otherwise of those who remain faithful to the teachings of Christ. Not because of the strength of your convictions, but because John tells us where the source of this confession comes from. What I mean is this. We can be certain of the continued confession of the saints because of its origin. If we look at the substance of what is said in verse 2, you'll see that it is the Spirit of God who is operative and empowering the lesser spirit, which is us. When John says, by this you know the Spirit of God, he points us towards the source of the confession. It is as though he says, you want to know where the Spirit is at work? He's at work in those who continue to confess the truth about Jesus. The Spirit is most at work in the Christian who leads a Christ-oriented, Christ-glorifying, Christ-motivating, and Christ-loving lifestyle. In other words, you want to see a more genuine work of the Spirit in your life? Do you want it to be said of you that the Spirit is at work in your day-to-day? -day? Be a Christ-dominated Christian. Speak of Christ in the morning with your friends, with your family. Speak of Christ to your own soul. Sing of Christ, learn of Christ, read of Christ. These are all things which the Apostle would say demonstrate that the Spirit is active in your life. That is the work of the Spirit. To claim that the Spirit is at work in your life and those around you, those in the watching world, can't say, well, he confesses Christ, that upon his tongue is the words of Jesus and trust and conviction in who he is and what he's done on his behalf is to have an incorrect assessment of yourself. This is why it's so dangerous to associate works of the Spirit with actions, behavior, or words that don't have Jesus as their centerpiece. This is the problem with the charismatic movement, is it not? That things like slaying in the Spirit are attributed to the Spirit of God. Things like ecstatic experiences are attributed to the Spirit of God. None of these things are leading to or promoting or trying to spread the glory of Christ. None of these things do that, but they give weight to the Spirit of God himself. But as we see in the text, the work of the Spirit of God is to have Christ elevated. And as we see particularly here, is to have persons, Christians, confess Jesus. But we've looked at this test of confessing or belief in Christ. But have you also considered that what, and more importantly, who you're willing to listen to is a litmus test of Christianity? The scripture says, and seems to suggest this, look at verse 5 and 6. It says, they're from the world. They speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. 
By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. A few quick points of clarification. It's likely that the two references to us, where, it said, where John says, whoever knows God listens to us, it's likely that he's referring to the apostles. Second point of clarification that may be a bit longer. The word spirit here in verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The term spirit here may be taken metonomically as well, or it could just mean the spirit of God. So the spirit of truth could actually just be synonymous with the spirit of God, and the spirit of error could just be synonymous with the spirit of the Antichrist. So those are two quick clarifications, but it doesn't change the text very much because if, if it is that we take the term spirit of truth to simply mean an individual who displays this spirit of truth, basically saying, well, this individual who's preaching to me is actually showing me that he's operating under the spirit of truth. If we took the passage that way, it wouldn't be any different than saying we know that this individual is operating by the Spirit of God. So it, it doesn't really render much violence to the text. So the second part of the text, John contrasts the origin or the vernacular and the audience of these false prophets to that of believers who truly speak by the Spirit of God. He says they are from the world. Or to put it differently, the organized system and all those who are part of it who are antichrist. If you have an inaccurate view of the nature of Christ, that's where you're from, the world. That's the place you were raised and taught. It's like when my mother used to see us eating at the dinner table with our hands, she would ask whether we're from the jungle. Obviously she knows we literally were not from the jungle, but what we were doing demonstrated that you were acting more like Tarzan than a son that she's raised in her household. So that's the, that's the sense in which he's saying this. He's saying that people who listen to the world have been taught its customs, raised in its ways, and so they, they say things like, well, Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. That's how they speak, it's the vernacular they use based on their upbringing. But John goes further than this. He says that those who listen to them are no different. It seems quite evident to us sometimes that someone who's willing to speak or teach falsehood is not a believer. That's obvious. But what if your shelves are just filled with books from Kenneth Copeland? What if your shelves are just filled with books from, I don't know, some person who believes that Jesus is a demigod or something? Like, that also indicates to you. It's not simply that you say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I am someone who trusts that Jesus is God. But who are you embracing as true teachers of God? This should be no surprise to us, though. Having heard the gospel several times before we came to faith, many of us would have lived and grew up in churches Many of us would have had the realization one day, oh shoot, I'm not a Christian, I don't really believe this stuff. The gospel confronts us about our sin. 
It is an affront to the very nature of our self-dependent, self-exalting, self-indulgent selves. Those who are unwilling to sit down under his teaching and have their souls exposed and condemned for the vile thing that it is have to grapple with the reality that they may not be saved. How do you believe in the person and work of Christ if you are unwilling to admit your guilt, for instance? Is not a primary part and component of gospel preaching. The bad news, isn't that where we usually start? The bad news, we usually start at, you are a sinner, you need help, and it is afforded to you in the provision of Christ. But you can't do that if you are unwilling to submit and listen to and hear and embrace and imbibe the teachings of Christ. That's why John is so adamant that those who are unwilling to hear and embrace the apostolic message cannot be partakers of eternal life. In other words, one of the ways we notice we can de or detect whether the Spirit has done a genuine work in your life is whether you gravitate towards preachers, teachers, friends, family who want to minister to you the things of Christ. And the simplicity of this test is perhaps even more challenging to hear. What is simply said is this, you want to know who it is that is really filled with the Spirit? The ones in whom it is clearly demonstrated that the Spirit is at work are the ones who are attentive to the teaching of the Gospel. Listening to faithful teaching and preaching week by week, embracing it, appropriating its truths as your own, and finding delight in them is the work of the Spirit. Brethren, the world does not listen to this kind of thing. Finding comfort merely in the Psalms or meditating only on those parts of Scripture which please you without having dealings with Christ will be to no avail. You must listen and embrace the apostolic teaching concerning the person and work of Christ. John says it in this way so that we would know whether we're operating under the spirit of truth or the spirit of error, or whether we are listening to the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. But before we go, just to summarize, we've looked at the command that we've been given. And it's a command to do something and to not do something. Don't believe this, believe every spirit. Don't be gullible. Don't put your mind in neutral. But test the spirits. Do the mental work of trying to figure out whether someone is operating under the Spirit of God. And how do you do that? You do that by determining whether the person is representing Christ faithfully. Is he speaking of Jesus who is very God and very man? Is he speaking of Jesus who came down from heaven and bled and died? Have you done such things? Is your profession correct or in accordance with this apostolic command? And then after that, we looked at those you are willing to listen to. Are you willing to listen to and embrace and receive and appropriate the truths of those who are teaching you falsehoods concerning Christ. So we looked at those things and now we're going to look at this victory that John highlights in verse 4. I would just remind you again that John sets up this portion of text by stating that not some false prophets or teachers went out into the world, but many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's as though he is saying the Savior has risen, the church is in, his in, is in her infancy, and immediately the enemy comes out of the trenches and there is a full frontal assault on the church. 
And, I, and as I mentioned before, at this point in time, there was no collection of books that you could cross-reference. The apostles weren't knocking on every door. Some would say the church was vulnerable at this time and subject to being thrown into confusion and error. But of course, that would be if you're speaking humanly. What we see in the text is that while the church is in battle against the forces of darkness, which seek to unmoor us from our firm standing in Christ, we have been given a great guarantee of victory, the indwelling work of the Spirit of God. John argues here that whilst God's foes may be many, their efforts at thwarting the work of God in believers' lives is as threatening as throwing rocks at an oncoming tank. Satan could have tens of trillions of hordes of enemies, but to the one God they are less than nothing. The massive onslaught of deception is impotent against the overwhelming work of the Spirit of God. I should note here quickly, brethren, that when John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, he's not doing a comparison of degrees. He's doing a comparison of categories. It's not like if he's saying that, you know, Satan is Poseidon and God is like Zeus, right? You know, they're both gods, but, you know, Zeus is like the chief god and Poseidon is like a lesser god. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that there is the divine and there is a creature, Satan. The chasm between the two is great and cannot be spanned. That is what he's trying to communicate. Satan is unable to master the saints with his cunning because the all-surpassing wisdom and power of the Spirit. The Spirit does not allow any of God's people to get so mixed up and wrong about the Gospel that they do so to their own ruin. That's what it means to overcome them, or stated differently, to have victory over the false apostles. It means not to be blinded and led astray by the false teaching of these secessionists, these people who had seceded from the Johannine community. This is a sober and consoling reminder, especially to those who have in God's providence and great grace have received the truth of the gospel and held fast to it. It was not by the strength of our own convictions that we are resilient to the deception of the enemy. We do not have enough moral uprightness of mind and heart to shield ourselves from the one who is called the deceiver and the father of lies. As I read from Calvin concerning our frailties, he says, quote, For such is our infirmity that we succumb before we engage with the enemy. For we are so immersed in ignorance that we are open to all kinds of fallacies, and Satan is wonderfully artful in deceiving. Such is our weakness as men and women, and even as regenerate men, we still have remaining corruption that would lead to our peril, if not for the security afforded to us by the Spirit. Evidently, this is no reason for our passivity, it was mentioned earlier that we are commanded to test the Spirit to see whether they are from God, and that requires effort. And based on the text, God blesses those efforts. Because we know Christ and hold fast to Him as He is revealed in, the, in His Word, even in the face of much deception and lies, because we know Him and trust in Him and hold fast to Him by the work of the Spirit, we will not be utterly deceived by Satan. This is a great comfort to us, brethren, when theological battle still rages over central topics concerning the gospel, that we can read this promise 
that we will not be lost to the deception of the world. Because the Spirit has been given to us to teach us both the person and work of Christ. And it is with this promise laid out for us that we can engage meaningfully as we approach the scripture concerning Christ. We shouldn't look at the difficulty of some theological matters and start getting concerned that we will apostatize when we read some difficult article or something like that. We should have confidence that since we've received Christ, by the work of the Spirit, he will lead us into truth. The Jesus who was born of Mary, God of God, light of light, crucified on the tree and risen on the third day, having believed that confession, we know that the Spirit will not lead us into the deep end of the pool without a flotation device. Yes, we may stray doctrinally. Yes, we say incorrect things in our prayers, incorrect things to our friends. But if we have been drawn to confess and embrace the God-man who suffered long ago and who is recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture, if you have believed that he is indeed the Christ, come to save you from your sins, then rejoice. It is the same Spirit that works in you to believe this testimony. As the Apostle John says, we will not fail to confess that Christ has come in the flesh to save us from our sins because greater is the one who is at work with our frail minds to ensure we stay firmly rested on the secure foundation of Christ.